So hello and welcome to another episode of Rebel City Podcast. Um, this week's episode we have Darren McGarvey or Loki the Scottish rapper, depending on how you know him or how you've engaged um, with his content. Um, before we get into that, this is our 40th episode and we're a year old, so absolutely amazing. Um, when we started doing this, I don't think, I really thought we would get a year in or 40 episodes or quite have the same amount of engagement. Um, last week I had said about the stats that we're getting through or improving week on week and I sh- uh, gave a wee shout out to some people. I'm just going to do that again. So Jeanette Finlay, call out Chris Bungard, Chris McQueer, Sean McDonald, um, KP, loads and loads and loads, Elliot Reeves, loads of people just want to say thank you. Alex Tiffin, Mike Stuckberry, thank you for the retweets coming on the show, everything that you do. So this week's um, guest, as I said, Darren McGarvey. Um, Darren's doing um, the podcast tour of Glasgow, I think. He's he's on so many podcasts coming up, so I thought I'd get this one out pretty rapid, get ahead of the, the trend. Um, we spoke about a show that's coming up in the Fringe, um, Scotland Today, and uh, I'll post some links to tickets um, with the podcast had an incredible conversation. We started out on the show and it just kind of went from there. I had a whole list of stuff that, um, talking points and I never really touched it because Darren's such an engaged, educated person um, and the subjects that he goes out and talks about in the world that, uh, I mean, we just took it away. We spoke about sort of politics, um, what it's like to have money now that he's got a wee bit of cash behind him off the back of poverty safari um, we spoke about social mobility um, dealing with how your life's changing a whole load of stuff and a really really good episode um, we've got Mary Black coming up um, pretty shortly after this one as well so we're putting out some um, good episodes in the next few weeks just want to say thank you to anybody who has clicked, listened, liked, shared anything at all um, to do with the podcast. I really appreciate it. I love doing it. Um, it's my creative outlet. And um, it just seems to be the last few weeks that everything's really sort of taken off and I can't be more thankful, grateful to people for that. So thank you, anybody that's been on or follows or likes anything like that. And on that, I'll just um, go to the episode. Cheers, guys. Hello and welcome to another episode of Rebel City Podcast. As always, we'll get Matt. How's it going, Matt? I know bad, mate. Um, just loving life at the minute. We're absolutely rammed with guests and we've got another great one today. I know, man. Very privileged to have Darren McGarvey. How's it going, Darren? Very well, thank you. It's nice to be here. Thanks for turning this around at such short notice. <laughs> <laughs> Quite good at that, actually. Well, and this is a, the advantages of having your own, doing it in your own place, don't need to book studios and all that type of shit mm. to get people in, man. But we're here to talk about, I mean, mainly we're here to talk about the show that's going on at the Fringe this year, um, Scotland Today. So what's the what's the theme of the show? What's well, I mean, I've been work. Obviously, I'm kind of known for writing about issues around poverty and things like that. Mm. Um but the last year for me has been a bit of a kind of head fuck because I'm not poor 
And I don't, <laughs> and I, yeah. and you know, not necessarily that I was totally dark poor before the book came out, but yeah. my whole circumstances have completely changed. So I thought that this would be a good way for me to kind of still stick to familiar themes that people might be interested or used to me talking about, but yep. also get a chance to talk about different stuff. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I've always t- spoken about or written about social mobility for the point of feeling socially immobile yeah, or excluded in some way. And just like the amount of opportunities, the amount of <clears throat> mobility that I've enjoyed in the last year has not only been quite dizzying, but also a whole new stream of insights that you get yeah. into not just the economy or politics, but how this ravine opens up between the winners and losers in society. Mm. Because some of the things that you realise when your lifestyle changes, um, it challenges a lot of your assumptions, Mm -hmm. which obviously were previously based on just experience and being on the other side of the train tracks. Mm -hmm. And so really, I just kind of wanted to write a show that explores some of that stuff, because I think my claims to being working class are getting more tenuous by the day, even Mm -hmm. though I still feel connected to that community and I still want to speak no not on behalf of that community but 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 just try to kind of express the issues across the divide mm-hmm. um so I it's just kind of led to a lot of interesting observations and conflicts within me mm-hmm. and I just thought I'll do a show about that mm-hmm. this is something that um one of our previous guests kind of Vaguely touched on uh, Chris McQueer, the author of like, Hangs and uh, Here We Fucking ah, He's go a good guy, man. Shout out ah, to him. He was an absolutely lovely boy. Um, but he was saying himself that he had that like fear about success taking him away from what made him successful. You know what I mean? Like, so it's, it's obviously not just yourself. You know what I mean? Like, what is. <clears throat> I mean, I, I quite like the fact that we've got people like yourself out there who have that kind of working class background that even though, like we were, the other day, we had uh, Mary Black in. And again, she's Shout out to Mary Black. Yep. she's cool as fuck. Ah, uh, she was. Um, she's a, a really working class person who's went into this kind of austere environment and still managed to stay who she is. Um, so, I mean, I think it's possible. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that you know the change needs to be something that is intrinsically about losing yourself in mm-hmm. this new world. It's just Aye. an extra string to your bow. And she would have experienced a lot of things that I've been privileged enough not to have to go through. Mm. So because she's a politician, then there's a different level of scrutiny on her and a different sense of accountability yeah. and different standards. Whereas mm. if somebody pulls me up for the way that I talk or, or something that I say, I can always just say, well, I'm not a fucking politician. Yeah. <laughs> you know, fuck off. Aye, of course. Now, I know Mary can do that as well, but yeah. then obviously because of aspects of gender and sexuality as well, I think that a lot of the stick that she's received has been motivated more by resentments around those things. Mm-hmm. And then also there was a big kind of campaign for a while that was trying to sort of out her as some kind of like middle-class person incognito, yeah, yeah. which for a working-class person is the ultimate insult. Yeah. <laughs> call me whatever you want, do you know what I mean? But if you call me middle-class, I'm going to chase your motor to the lights, I'm going to make, roll your window down, do you know what I mean, and give you what for. So, um, you know... I think, and it's the same experience with Chris as well, I think, like, those anxieties before the book comes out, I can still remember what they were like. The anxiety is, can I write a book? I mean, your whole thing is just consumed with, am I the sort of person that can write a book? It's it's all these other kind of posh-sounding people that Mm -hmm. do this kind of thing. And then actually, the whole mindset is so consumed with just trying to write a book. And for me, obviously, having a young family, young kids, I was working multiple jobs. Mm -hmm. And then... The next thing you know, the book's out, 
and it just feels like everybody's talking about it. And suddenly you're like, oh, I never thought about this part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking about getting the book done. Mm-hmm. I wasn't actually thinking that it was going to do anything mm-hmm. other than be proof that I could write a book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, when the Orwell Prize happened, that's really when everything went into overdrive. Because the Orwell Prize happened two weeks before I was due to do the Fringe. Okay. And then the day that I started the Fringe, Pan McMillan, one of the big London publishers, mm-hmm. republished Poverty Safari. So it was this kind of perfect storm of circumstances yeah. that just put me into every conversation mm. that was going on culturally, and uh, uh, certainly in Scotland anyway, in a way that uh, set everything up really nicely. Mm-hmm. So funnily enough, one of the things one of the things I'll kind of riff on in the show is that was my initial problem. You know, not being able to afford to write a book, the stress of can you write a book, the low self esteem. My problem this year is. I'm competing with my own success last year. Yeah. So I've got to write a book, another book, and I've got to write another French show that's got to be as good or better. Right. And even though that's an embarrassing, indulgent yeah. problem to have, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. it's a real problem for me. Aye, of course. <laughs> but you can't, but you, you, you can't, the thing is, these problems become harder to share because I still am surrounded by people who are still living in that yeah. life that I come mm-hmm. from. Yeah. It's almost like the third album. Like this is what is this is your be here now. I think that I mean the fact that you're just acknowledging it. I think that's a good thing. Like I think the majority of people would just get lost up their own arse and just go into this. Probably feel the same sort of tensions that you're feeling, but I'll just go into this sort of like no, I, I'm this person that people think I'm, and and I'll just express it like that rather than what you're doing as is self-reflecting and actually like going out there and talking about it because I think that's going to be really powerful for people. Um, I think one of the things that jumped out, I was reading through the sort of Twitter feed um, just in the prep, was that you were talking about the sort of that perfect storm that you were really lucky that things happened for you. Mm. Um, And it really like brought up quite a lot of stuff for me about, um, because I was in a band previously and and, and I struggled because I didn't make it. Um, and then when I speak to other people, they'll say to me, like, what do you mean you didn't make it? Like, you went on tour and you did all these things and you met all these amazing yeah. people. And I watched you play at music festivals. Uh, and, and, and I, I think London. back and go, fuck, I, maybe I should have just enjoyed it a wee bit more. And <laughs> is the aim just to actually just do the work rather than just aiming to be successful? And you'll get yeah. people that will sit in their bedroom, like you were saying, I just wanted to write a book, but you'll get people that will actually sit and go, no, I want to be a best-selling author, and aye, that is my goal aye. before I've even like wrote a page. Aye. I think, you know, that. I mean, if you go on, on YouTube or, or Instagram, you're, you're going to find those videos that people will Google search, you know, how to be successful about a certain type of thing, you know, and mm-hmm. somebody breaking down the secrets and the secret ingredients and yeah. all that. Some of the things that people don't tell you, Maybe either because they've not uh, really thought about it that much mm-hmm. or because, as you sort of are, are saying there, they, they assume that the circumstances in which they suddenly find themselves were all because of their own hard work and their mm, own talent. Aye, and that does play a role. You know, I'm not saying that merit's not important, mm-hmm. but, you know, there are so many uh, other circumstances and variables that were out with my control that were beyond the scope of my talent and ability yeah. mm-hmm. that came together, that created the circumstances that I'm now in. Now, maybe I deserved a bit of luck, you know, like I had a bit yeah. of a rough time in my earlier life, but and, and obviously, you know, if I'm choosing to write at night and, and somebody in, in my competitive field is choosing to go to the pub, then maybe I deserve an opportunity yeah. more than them. And if they're sitting steaming, wondering why they've no goat you. somewhere, maybe they need to think about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, even when you just think about how, like, 
we're even alive, the chances of being alive, yeah. the chances of being born in the country you're born in, the family you're born in, yeah. mm-hmm. the chances of the universe existing at all. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Even something as simple as like the manuscript landing on the right desk at the right time. Just, you know, you know what I mean? for, for the big bang to the present second, there's just so much <clears throat> random stuff going on mm-hmm. that to truly believe that your individual talent and competence is the biggest factor in your life mm-hmm. or your circumstances it's quite delusion, delusional, I would say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you no, know, a lot of people pull me up saying, you know, don't, don't, don't need to be too humble. And I, I'm not trying to be falsely humble. I don't actually, I, you know, I'm, I'm not always a humble person. So that's no the right accusation for me. Mm-hmm. It's not about being humble. It's about reality. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that as well as my work and as well as what I've done, there are so many other things. Random acts of kindness. People going out their way when they really didn't have to. Mm-hmm. People looking after my children. You know. Women performing so many unpaid fucking roles in life to allow me the space just to think about writing, never mind write. Aye. So, you know, when when you're constantly getting referred to as, 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 a, as a success in a vacuum, mm-hmm. as if you've just self-generated, then, you know, I feel it's important for me to constantly remind myself of the truth. Mm-hmm. Because I think that keeps the feet on the ground. It keeps you kind of hungry. But also, it means that you're no it means that you're no, uh, you're no becoming somebody who kind of permeates this falsehood about meritocracy, mm. because you know if you if you look at somebody like Boris Johnson or you look at somebody like Michael Gove, okay. then surely you have to say that while they might believe they deserve to be within spitting distance of number ten yep. Downing Street, surely the circumstances that they were born in are perhaps the biggest factor mm-hmm. that yeah. have allowed them to ascend almost to the kind of apex of, of society, yeah. especially yeah. with Boris Johnson. I mean, he's known, he's not an academically remarkable man. No. no. He doesn't strike me as having great values or being, you know, he's very cunning. Yeah, he's all about self-advancement. There is a certain sophistication and intelligence required for yep. that. Mm-hmm. But surely... He plays pa- his character well. Ah, well, surely his parents who, who, who took out a mortgage to put him through school... If the aim was to create somebody with integrity and competence, then it was a bad investment. Mm-hmm. But obviously, <laughs> posh school isn't necessarily just about that. No, this is like access to absolutely no you know? meritocracy when it comes to guys like Johnson and Gove. I mean, um, <clears throat> so excuse me. I think I read in recent days somebody had tweeted out um, in the build up to you know what feels like Johnson's sort of coronation at this point. Um, was uh, <laughs> it's a, it's I know it's just a procession into it, um, but a list of Boris's top one hundred achievements as London Mayor, and it was like promoted London Fashion Week by stunning on a catwalk and taking a picture, and you're like, how is that what we're classifying as a like, Boris like a legit complete coherent sentence? <laughs> it was literally as, as, as sort of bad as that, you know what I mean? Like, so I, the notion of meritocracy at those levels is laughable. Yeah, and the whole idea. I mean? The more I researched into it the more I, I realised actually the term meritocracy was actually coined satirically. So it was it was a writer in the 50s who wrote a book called The Rise of the Meritocracy, which was one of a few dystopian novels that, that, that were coming out around that oh, period right. that were kind of trying to foresee the current the trends of that time to now. And obviously each of them were right about some things and each of them were wrong about some things. This particular book was wrong about the sort of society that might develop, but obviously it was it was spot on about... If you were to take the idea of meritocracy to its logical conclusion mm-hmm. and you were to actually stratify society based purely on talent and purely on competence, you would still have an underclass. Yeah. You would still have people who wouldn't be entitled to do certain jobs because they're already being written off as stupid. Yeah. Because merit 
is always defined to the advantage of the people who benefit from the way the system is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, your idea of merit and Boris Johnson's idea of merit is two different things. Yeah. You, you, so to be worthy in the eyes of mainstream society, you have to show certain qualities and you have to show competence in certain areas. Mm-hmm. And if you don't fall within that kind of narrowly defined catchment, then, you know, you're part of a counterculture or you're a radical yeah. or whatever, even if you're just as competent, even if you're just as talented. And so, you know, I, while it can be comforting or it can be kind of tempting to go, wow, look at this, look at what I have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I personally try to avoid that. And not just that, I, I mean, I don't want somebody that's helped me or somebody that's supported me watching me talk like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not that they would ever help me to be acknowledged, but it's to be completely ignorant to the amount of effort and time that other people put in to helping you. And mm-hmm. I've helped a lot of people as well, so I know how it goes. Mm. I think, like, in that area of, like, success, there's a lot of romance, like, especially, like, and I'm sure that you'll, you'll, maybe agree but maybe know that especially in things like the arts so like when I was trying to be or when I, th- I decided I want to be in a band I can remember having a conversation with somebody that I told them that I'd spent say like f- five weeks writing a song and they were like well it must be shite because the truly great songs just happen they came out of thin air, like somebody sits well, like down. razor light songs. <laughs> <laughs> Around this no. in two seconds, <laughs> you can tell. But, like, aye, the myth of like, great songs. So, aye, the myth of, like, people, even people like Noel Gallagher, he's got a great story where uh, fucking Johnny Marr gave Malena a guitar and he opened it up and he took it out and he, he wrote Love Forever and it, right. just, it just flowed out me. But that's a myth because the one that guy like... grafted for years. It was like five year a graft behind Oasis yeah. before they made it, but... This myth of like Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, the greats, Jimi Hendrix, he came yeah. out of nowhere. No, he'd been playing in James Brown's band for like, once you get underneath the skin of success, you realise that what lies behind it generally is a fuck ton of hard work and a dust of luck. Ah, you don't walk into a gym and do a £400 deadlift, you know what I mean? <laughs> you <laughs> might walk into a new gym and do it and somebody goes, oh my God, they've done a £400 deadlift and they mm-hmm. realise all the times they couldn't even do it right, yeah. all the times they put their back mm-hmm. out, you know, like there's a whole story that happens prior to that I think sometimes when you have a kind of a sort of an overnight success almost or it's perceived that way or it's framed that way by media that certainly happened with me Um, then actually what I was realising was to these people in London it's like I've just been created in a test tube Mm -hmm. it's like I've just appeared on the scene which actually then I realised this works to my advantage because they don't see you coming they don't realise all yep. of the uh, experience that you've got as a mm-hmm. performer, as a writer, doing media, all these things. So suddenly, the thing that bowls everybody over is how competent you seem yeah. when you mm-hmm. talk and how uh, you know how well you write. Because in their mind, it's like you just exist mm-hmm. in that moment. Because you were thrown to uh, you know the UK level uh, and the exposure that comes along with that, and I think obviously the book <clears throat> in question time were probably the biggest at that time, but. Yeah. You'd been grafting on the scene in Glasgow for years. I mean, absolutely. I think we've both bumped into you at gigs previously mm. when it was, you know, pubs and clubs around mm-hmm. the town and stuff like that. Mm. Um, you know, I was a vague acquaintance of your wife for a small period of time. I think you were as well. Um, so, I mean, it wasn't like, you know, you just rocked up one day and, you know what I mean? There was a massive amount of work that went into getting to that tipping point. Aye, and I think, see, for anybody out there who's kind of on their own journey with it and wrestling with, you know, should I be putting all this effort into something that might not work out? I've actually found that it's the... It's 
if you're grafting away and you don't realise that what you're doing is work, that's a real privilege. Aye. Because mm-hmm. actually what I've noticed is now that, you know, 60-70% of the work that I've put in, it just comes natural to me. Mm-hmm. It's a bit different now because um, I'm a, a, I've professionalised it. Yeah. So now there's different kind of pressures, there's mm-hmm. deadlines. You've got to, I was always independent, right? When a big publisher gives you a big advance, they're paying for the right to say, here's when the book's coming out, here's what we think about what you're writing, you might want to change that. Yeah. Uh-huh. And there's a whole adjustment that happens. But still, you know, half the time I'm writing... I'm enjoying the process of doing it. Yeah. It's some of the extra stuff or the stress or not getting enough sleep and all that that, that makes it difficult. Mm-hmm. But that's stuff everybody's dealing with, whatever Absolutely. their job is, whatever they're going through. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's, it's important as well sometimes. And I would have said this even when I was living in support of the accommodation along in Mary Hill 15 years ago. Uh, as difficult as things can be, if you can locate something to be grateful about, Mm-hmm. then actually this can help you generate the kind of wellness that you need to transcend yeah. a difficulty, whether it's a mental health issue, whether it's a professional thing, a relationship thing. There are always wee opportunities to think there's people out there that score it worse than me. And I don't mm-hmm. mean that in a cliche way. I mean, yeah. that's definitely for me it's been a, a life-saving technique at times. You're big on gratefulness, aren't you? Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I, I take it too far, but I mean, I, I write out lists and all sorts of fucking... No, that's good, mate. But I just really want to... Because I, I, I woke up in my 30s and was just like, my life's shite. And then I've slowly realised over the last five years that actually I've got a great fucking life and that I've got great mates. And these are the things that people want it's no the the success or the adoration of mm. people that they don't know it's the respect to the people that they love and i think like when you were talking about the you don't just walk into a gym and they are big massive deadlift or about that is the type of thing unfortunately that i feel that people are aspiring to that they click on their instagram or mm-hmm. whatever and go and guys like in 90 days you could look like me and you're like mate you've been going to the gym for 20 years aye. like there is no way that you can get some but this is like this sort only of take a year fix. just to get the diet under control aye <laughs> this is like the quick fix that people think and i think that it's almost applying to mental health as well where people are like how do i fix myself the day and you're yeah like, you can't it's people going to take a long time for you to get there do you know uh, what i mean people are after destinations no journeys the, mm-hmm. exactly well the, these things you know, I think sometimes people they become unhappy when they're defining what they have in in uh, in contrast to what they think somebody else has materially. Yep. Um. I I, I thought it was it was for me it was a pure pleasure to meet Russell Brand last year because I had been following Russell right, Brand, right. but I had been studying him, not as a sort of personality or a political voice or anything like that. First mm. of all, the thing I liked about him was how he spoke, because like for me, words are like music, right? So if somebody arranges words in a certain way and speaks with a certain conviction, yep. then regardless of what they're talking about or regardless of how they speak, there's a harmony that's immediately Aye. kind of alluring for he me. He does have a quite a lyrical tone to his Aye. voice, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. So I was tuned in and straight away there was a couple of things that he was saying, <clears throat> a couple of things I noticed. See when he was telling people not to vote and there was a big backlash mm-hmm. and yeah. the sun started going after him and he was under a lot of pressure as a celebrity mm. going through a divorce and all these things. Yep. I was watching it and I remember like I was I was in recovery at that time a couple of years in, right? So I was doing really well. And I immediately identified that in my mind he didn't seem well. Yeah. It seemed mm-hmm. like he was struggling. He was very defensive. It was very it, it was like he was caught in this place where he was wanting to thrust himself into the spotlight but couldn't cope with the pressure of the spotlight. Yeah. And you know, and I, I followed him, followed him, then I heard him in an interview describing fame as being 
like ash in his mouth. All right. I don't know if that's his. I don't know if that's a song lyric that he's kind of recanting, mm-hmm. or if that's how his observation. Yeah. But there's something about that that stuck with me, that put me in kind of a forward thinking mode, which mm-hmm. was if my life continues to flow towards the outcomes that I'm working towards, I'm going to have to bear all these things in mind. Definitely. And and so people will get depressed because they think that having money is going to make them happier mm-hmm. or that they, they, they think that being acknowledged publicly or being publicly noted is going to make them happier. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. Those things can create fleeting moments of satisfaction, mm-hmm. right? But actually what you realise, and I've realised, and this is in the show as well, you know, talking about money and suddenly earning money until the point where the money, like when you're poor, loses its value. It's just this thing that comes and goes. Mm -hmm. And actually through being overly generous, maybe for a desire to be liked, maybe out of a guilty conscience, or maybe just because sometimes I'm generous, right? Mm -hmm. And I know what it's like to not have anything, so I want to help somebody. Then I end up this year putting myself into a kind of, figure four leg lock financially which is ridiculous because I earned more this year than every previous year put together Mm -hmm. and so uh, suddenly I'm like hang on this is financial insecurity that I'm experiencing Mm -hmm. which is just as acute and constant as it was before Mm -hmm. but again it's not the kind of thing you can share publicly because people go like oh mister fucking sold 80,000 books well it's a shame for you and and, and what, what really it showed me is that I'm, I'm, I'm using money as a conduit to happiness. You know, being overly generous with yeah. it, uh, maybe making purchases to get the house done up and get married and all that a bit too quickly or being a bit too extravagant with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and suddenly learning quite a hard lesson about, hang on, I've took on a lot of financial obligations thinking, mm-hmm. oh, this money's going to keep coming in. Yeah. And actually, no, I'm, I'm under stress because if I don't generate the next book or yeah. the yeah. next show, then it's not just me. It's uh, not just my lifestyle. It just kind of normalises this, you know, the, the fantasy that people have in their head about, you know, the quote-unquote celebrity life as, a, you know, an author or a playwright or a rapper Aye. or whatever it is that you're in about at the time. But, like, what you're talking about is having a job and, like, worrying about the bills exactly the same as everybody else. Yeah. Like, um, I think it's interesting that you obviously mentioned Russell, uh, Russell Brand because... I think that's, you know, from my understanding or limited understanding of atheists, it's quite a, a usual comparison. Obviously, you talk a lot on social issues from a, a working-class perspective. Um, and I know, obviously, Russell Brand as well had at times went out and tried to help with, like, London uh, rent uh, issues uh, and, yeah. like, homelessness and stuff like that. He's always been a campaigner mm, on some level, I think, or an activist. And quite, and quite successful in a lot of respects as well. Um, but I think a lot of the criticism he gets at the time is, is sometimes what I see, like you say, leveled at you, where you want to talk about a social issue or you know, got, you know, politics or whatever it is, and people come back to you like with that. Well, hold the, on, the, what champ- is, how the is champagne, it? Aye, that, type that kind of thing. Of and you're like, what difference does it make if somebody's actually going, no, this isn't cool. Here's why it's not cool. Here's why we should be kicking back against it. And then it's like, well, what's it going to do with you? And you're like, well, it's going to do with me because I'm here and I've got a platform. You know what I mean? Like, and I think when you talk about Russell, that's you know, I, I probably quite an apt comparison, you know what I mean? Like, you face a lot of the same criticisms for, you know, trying to approach life in, in great, similar ways. He's a great example as well anybody that's in recovery from any sort of malady of any sort, you know? Because he, you've even seen the change in him again in the last few years. Mm. So when I watch him, I mean, I've, I'm not experienced anything like the kind of, of uh, public attention yeah. that he's experienced, mm-hmm. probably never will, but I'm not aiming for that, thankfully. Yeah. 
but the, the the thing the the thing that I've noticed about him is that he's still very much relevant. He still has a career. He still lives a good lifestyle. Yeah. But he seems a lot calmer. He's withdrawn in a certain way. He's got it all in his own terms mm-hmm. because he's realised actually chasing that success and chasing that money and chasing that fame mm-hmm. is making him sick. Yeah. yeah. And it, you can actually feel satisfied with what it is you've got. And I think one of the other things I go into in the show is know this idea of the centre ground. Mm-hmm. This kind of... It, this idea, you know, we define every political demographic in a sort of caricature, I believe, you know, the loony lefty. You know, mm-hmm. most of the lefties I know are grassroots activists that are getting people signed up to tenants unions. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? They're getting people clued up about their rights and their jobs. Uh, you know, you do get some people who it's all just about, you know, mere superficial things or it's ideological and academic and mm-hmm. no accessible. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, the vast majority of people I know on the left uh, work hard yeah. they're dead humble they're dead committed um, but then the same can be said of a lot of people that I've met who occupy this centrist position mm-hmm. in politics and that's become a kind of that's become another sort of label we apply one of the things that I've learned through becoming socially mobile is that while it might appear to other people that I have enough and I certainly do have enough mm-hmm. financial insecurity is built into the economic DNA of this country yeah mm-hmm. it's what drives every purchase it's what drives every loan it's what drives every single decision to move from one job to the next mm-hmm. and so even people who have enough because they don't feel like they have enough because society is always bombarding us with messages yeah. about acquiring more stuff mm-hmm. then the financial insecurity is just as acute and so this shapes political behavior because on the radical left, you've got people saying, it's clear you've got enough. So maybe you want to spread the wealth a wee bit more. Mm-hmm. But the people who have more or have enough don't feel like they have enough. Yeah, yeah. So they're like, we can have a wee bit of radicalism, but not too much because actually getting half a 41% tax is a wee bit sorer than some of you lefties out there might yeah, realise. Yeah. And I find myself wrestling with these things mm-hmm. now. You know, your tax bill comes in and you're like, ah, ah. Oh, how much? <laughs> I earned how much? I didn't know how aye. much I'd earned. That's you know? it. Of course, you want to make your contribution. But I've I'm like, seen, ah, so this is why middle class people keep receipts for everything. I've seen my <laughs> I've seen my tax receipts at the end, of, and I'm, I make enough money as well. And I've seen my my tax thing come through at the end of the tax year and think, where the fuck did that go? Man, aye. I've pissed that up against the wall. Yeah. But aye. I quite like. I think that too much things make you just as unhappy as having too little. There definitely needs to be like a certain sort of basic platform of like food, shelter, healthcare, education that needs to get taken care of. And then the rest of it's all just superficial as fuck. Like people sitting, I, I, I can't remember where I heard this, but somebody said, as you tweet your outrage at the upper class on your iPhone that was built by a 10 year old in China, like mm. you need to look at your own hypocrisies yeah. and realize that you're contributing to this system yeah. that is ultimately out of control to a sort of certain extent. I, I quite like that something that perplexes me particularly is this idea that being liberal or being centre is almost like, oh, you, no, I would rather be hard left or hard right. Yeah. I, if you're in the middle, mm, mm, what are you? How, like, how dare you understand nuance? It can certainly is. I mean, I was getting pulled up the other day off of somebody, as I often do on social media, Somebody's like, in chapter 24 of your book, you went, you say that you used to think all Tories were scum and now you you don't think that. Can you explain 
You know what I mean? Right, explain why. <laughs> and I was like, you know, and then I gave them an answer, but that answer wasn't sufficient. Of course. And then I tried to elaborate a wee bit further. And then I realised what I was dealing with was somebody who, despite obviously having a real good academic grasp of politics and the economy from a leftist perspective, mm-hmm. they also had this rather juvenile assumption that every single person who has ever voted for the Conservative Party must hate poor people mm-hmm. or must be dangerous to poor people yeah. Yeah. and hasn't he really been able to or refuses to separate conservative values, conservative impulses, conservative instincts mm. from the conservative Tory party in its current form mm-hmm. yeah. and, and and I feel having, you know, been at food bank AGMs where there's conservative people in the audience, where there's Tories volunteering, mm-hmm. where there's Tory councillors there engaged on the issues I can't then go back to my echo chamber and act like I haven't experienced conservatives in real life and mm-hmm. found that they aren't all cunts. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like, you know, it's... And, and and being able to understand, I think, the moral worlds that drive certain types of politics. And I'm not saying every, there's an equivalent between every moral worldview. You know, there's not an equivalent between Islamic extremism and, you know, uh, centrism just because both people feel moral about what it is they're doing you can objectively say this is a lot of shite over here yeah um but at the same time people have a commitment to their moral worldview that needs to be observed and understood in order to understand the wider population the diversity of views at play not necessarily to, uh, to apologize for them or to play to them but so that you understand with almost military precision the society that you're moving in, who believes what, why they believe that, how they got mm. to that. Mm. Because if you're whether you want to persuade them or whether you want to take them out in a debate, the more you understand about how they think, the better, I yeah, believe. Definitely. I mean, we spoke about this with Mary Black, where I was saying that I've encountered, I mean, I grew up in a scheme and I was a working class guy and I've ascended to the middle class and to... I speak to people and I've spoke, spoke to I'm people. I'm still Springburn, so fuck a pair well, of you class traders. You're still a middle... <laughs> I, I live in Calderwood, man. Well, this is the thing. Like, I live in the Calderwood for two bookies. If you're, I am the same as him, I just live I, in Springburn. Statistically, <laughs> you're in the middle class as well. And the, to, the idea that you to expect somebody that's went to private school, so I think the example we were talking about was Rhys Mogg. That guy had a nanny until he was 22. To expect that guy to understand what it's like to grow up in a Glasgow housing scheme in the 90s, the 80s and 90s is fucking ridiculous. Just as ridiculous as it is for you to understand how it is to be upper class. Like, I grew up and it was almost hated money. It was like, pure money's the, the, the... I don't know what my mom used to say, but like money's is like all the evils the in the world. The root of all evil. The root of all evil. And then I'm sitting in a boardroom with, because I work at a, a, a huge billion pound company and I'm sitting in the boardroom with a guy that went to private school and sat in the board of directors of Arsenal and talking to him and going, oh wait, you're just a human being and you've got the same insecurities that I've got and I can see it in the guy's eyes. Yeah. And what you said that rings true with me is I've met these people in the real world there's too many people now that just sit on Twitter and think that that is the real world. Like, yeah. That is what the right is. What I see in these wee two-minute videos and these snapshots and articles on the newspaper, and I think like you need to go and experience these I, things. I like, mean, I feel, I feel the central truth, self-evident truth of conservatism is it works when people have something to conserve, yeah. right? The problem is when it's clumsily applied by public school conservatives to communities 
where there are so many other things that come before yeah. personal responsibility, that come before meritocracy, that come before becoming an entrepreneur or property or going to university. Now, the, the, that's just a fact, right? So the question then is, how do you create a circumstance where that sort of public school conservatism isn't being imposed? So you engage democratically, you vote for a party that isn't the conservative <clears throat> party, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you should always be attempting to communicate why you're doing that and express why you're doing that because there's a lot of people in the centre who often vote for a party because they feel that the alternative that they might otherwise vote for is a bit more dangerous to their interests yeah. or dangerous for the country, you know, and that's certainly the case right now. Yeah, we see a um, lot of, um, you know, in, in the general election, Jeremy Corbyn will get into bed with Nicola Sturgeon and, you'll, you know, you need to vote for us because you don't want this, I, as you're saying, but at the same time, the Tories then go and get in bed with the DUP who are, you know, arguably a lot. I mean, the guys don't even believe in fucking dinosaurs, you know what I mean? I, like, so it's, I mean, there is that... I know going I, on every day. Absolutely, and and like what I'm saying there, like I'm I'm no making I'm no justifying people who can who are sort of political chameleons, mm. you know, who can come on social media and sound like they're left wing, but actually quite comfortable voting for the Conservative Party if it's to settle a beef with Jeremy Corbyn, right? I'm not saying that that's cool. I don't think that is cool. The question is, be more honest about your values, then, if that's what you're willing to trade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, you have to understand the political dynamics that's that's at play. And, you know, making, when you're saying you're committed to truth and social justice, but you're also going to make an assumption about more than half the population in the country that you live in, that they're scum, a word that I reserve for a very specific type of person, yeah. uh, then I don't think that's reasonable. And more to the point, I don't think that that's intelligent. I don't think that that's an insightful way to behave. Mm-hmm. And and so that's, that's kind of where I'm at sometimes because I feel lefty. Mm-hmm. And I identify myself as that, and certainly that has been ascribed to me by people who know me in the community. Yeah. But there's a certain strain of left-wing person that I find difficult to tolerate, mm-hmm. you know, and it's the person who comes armed to the pearly white teeth, <laughs> full <laughs> set of teeth always, these cunts, do you know what I mean? Um, uh, with all the academic understanding of things. But you parachute them into a community like Govan Hill, you parachute where people buy the Daily Mail, yeah. do you know what I mean? Who the fuck's buying the Daily Mail and housing schemes then if Tories are scum, the working class you're supposed to be standing and, and fighting on behalf of? Mm-hmm, you know yeah. what I mean? I just, I just personally, I just don't think that's I think cool. identity or what people, and we've we've touched on um, notions of identity in relation to, you know, the political landscape a, a number of times. But like, for example, you know, people become so entrenched in I'm working class, I'm this, I'm that, I'm whatever it happens to be, I'm for Indy, I'm for the union, I'm for, there's, mm-hmm. there seems to be any myriad of, you know, options for you to just yeah. get in behind and then get in the trench about nowadays. And I, and I found it quite recently where I think it was actually um, an article that you had posted that I shared, um, the decriminalisation of um, drug use in Scotland by the Daily Record. Now, mm. I actually prefaced both a, a Facebook post and a tweet with, this is a publication I ordinarily would not share. Mm. But in this instance, this is something that's bang on the money and needs to happen for our society to evolve. Yeah. And I got a lot of, well, what are you then sharing the daily record? And you're like, well, I just said to you that I wouldn't normally, but is this, this is an important issue. Is this because of the issue. position that the, the record took on Indy? Is that, that's, cause that's, sure. that's been the big... That's been a big thing that the, the Daily Record's paid for, I think, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of, like, the circulation vow. and all that, the Aye. vow and things like that. So I understand, I understand the reasoning, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I think, in general, tabloid journalism... 
particularly the, the, the I would say the the mirror uh, the record yeah it's improved over the years it's become more attuned to evolving social attitudes but ultimately a tabloid's job is to reflect what its guess of is of its readership's views yeah. now necessarily that's not always a responsible thing to do mm-hmm. it's a bit of an editorial cop-out sometimes you know this is our position on immigration because all our readers are kind of xenophobic yeah do you know mm-hmm. what i mean yeah like but at the same time when the media starts driving yeah. public opinion or trying to shape public opinion in a deliberate way such as some of the other right-wing tabloids mm-hmm. where you can see there's a proprietorial influence mm-hmm. over the editorial position yeah. then that's also dangerous so on one hand you're saying we expect tabloids to lead the way you know don't portray mm-hmm. issues in a certain way and then we're saying we can't have tabloids that are trying to lead the issues because they're going to lead it this way that yep. we don't like so actually you know the mayor, the mayor I've got into it the mayor I've understood it the, maybe more mature or maybe some of the Maybe some of the ethical accommodations that I've made mm-hmm. in recognition that an opportunity has been sprung my way mm-hmm. and that um, the situation that I'm in, I might not be able to afford not to take that opportunity, mm-hmm. which is me speaking very frankly, do you know what I mean, in a way that I will in the show. Yeah. Um, then then actually when you get to know people working in media and you get to know journalists a wee bit more, you realise actually it's one of the toughest professions out there because ultimately you're just getting it in the neck all the time Aye, off everybody mm-hmm. for everything. You you're working long hours, constant employment insecurity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're watching the whole industry fawn down around you mm-hmm. because of things like this. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so like in that sense, I have a wee bit more sympathy and a wee bit more mm-hmm. solidarity with journalists. Now, there's some bastards in the profession, oh, like every profession, and there's some liars and scoundrels, and I get that. But ultimately, um, you know, the, the, the position the Daily Record took on decriminalisation of drugs is one that I was very proud of yeah. as a Scottish person, as a consumer of Scottish news, yeah. and also as a as a, an employee of that paper. Mm-hmm. All right. Aye, aye. So the, 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 the Daily Record... Really, he's taking a big gamble there. As big a, no, as big a gamble as the vow. Mm-hmm. Where really, I think you know, a lot of the times the papers, what they do is they'll do something like they'll check what the odds are mm-hmm. at a bookies, all right, before a referendum. And if the odds are that the thing's losing, that's public opinion. So they're using all sorts of metrics to gauge what mm-hmm. the editorial position should be. Yeah. So the record saw its responsibility to reflect its readership, mm-hmm. which was very narrowly in favour of voting no. Mm-hmm. And that's just what happened. But obviously, every publication's paid some sort of cost for yeah. what they've done, whether it's the Sunday Herald, which no longer exists, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, or whether it's the Daily Record and the Scotsman and things like that. Um, but, you know, not to deviate too far. Just kind of, it's an interesting thing to go into. I wouldn't credit where it's due for them, you know what I mean? Like, there was was a point I was kind of trying to make at the time, and I found that, you know, that maybe hangover for things like the vow and all the rest of it drove this just just reaction. I was like, a quick point is people out there who want to talk about ethics of media, it's more ethically nightmarish to use Facebook for free than it is to buy a daily record Mm. in the grander scheme of the world Mm -hmm. and geopolitics and information for you to use. Facebook for nothing. That's actually a bigger ethical problem than spending what fifty yeah, p on a daily record. How your big data has been ah, abused. Yeah, uh, yeah. People don't understand it. it you're you're gaining them so much in return for that app and your phone, free. and that's, that's <laughs> the case across. I think. But it's nice to feel like you're doing the right thing, isn't it? Uh, it's nice it. to feel like you're doing the right thing. There's quite a lot. We were talking off mic earlier on where we daily like we shot versions of the podcast, and I'm working on one where. 
think politics is becoming like a fucking cult where people just don't feel like they've got a place in the world. Religion's dying. Like, and the only thing that they've got is this like place where of these things where they can go and put it online and they get 50, 100,000 of likes for saying, I think this. Mm. And the majority of people on my timeline think that as well. So that means that I'm right. And it's like the echo chamber, like you're saying during the, the independence referendum, I would have probably said, we're going to vote 75-25 for this. This is the Same. way I feel. Yep. This is the way my, my my social feels. And then when it came out, I was shocked to my fucking core. So yep. like, how can that be? Same here. And really reflected on it and when I've done exactly what I didn't want to do here with like Twitter and Facebook and I've ended up just surrounded by like-minded people and I'm not getting to see the other side. Yeah. And exactly what you were saying earlier on as well, to really, truly be able to speak to people about this, you need to understand all sides of the argument and understand why has somebody got here. So we were talking to Mary Black about this again, that my brother-in-law's a taxi driver and Uber, he's had to go back to driving the buses and he left the buses because he hated it and went to drive a taxi. Now Uber's come in and completely wiped out his job and the majority of people that work at Uber don't come for this country. So he is... Absolutely, like uh, anti-immigration because mm. it's done him out of a job. Aye. I understand that. I Aye. can see that. I'm not standing there screaming racist at him, which I would have probably have done three or four years ago, just because I can see why this Aye. guy feels like that. When actually, the, you can understand why he feels but it's like not it. Doesn't individual. Mean it, it doesn't mean it's right that he feels that way. Definitely no. not. Even, even in an empirical sense, when you yeah. actually look at the way that the society's set up, you can't, like, the reason that he moved from job to job is because he needs money to do X, Y, Z, which is the same reason the migrant comes into the country. Exactly. So they're motivated mm-hmm. by the same interests. Yeah. They have their labour to sell They've in a more in common than what they do different. Aye, exactly. But the way that the debate is currently set up and the, the things that people are, are sort of, like, kind of compelled to think are more important is the skin colour of the person who beat you a job. Yeah. When actually what you're talking about is a globalised economy where you're having migration of jobs... And that's followed by migration of workers. Mm -hmm. And then you've got, obviously, economic migrants coming in from all sorts of places, you know, violent, impoverished places. Mm -hmm. And they come here and often we put them in our most violent and poor communities. And we don't, we don't, somehow we don't expect there to be a breakdown in social cohesion sometimes. Mm -hmm. And places like Govan Hill, for example. Sight Hill as well. You know, the place was literally falling apart at the seams and they were dropping asylum seekers in. And you're like, what quality of life do you expect them to have? You know, know, and and it's funny because when you see migration depicted in the media, it's often pictures of Glasgow University and all that, you know. 3,000 migrants come from Syria and it shows you like Kelvin Grove Park. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And that's, actually, that's not where they're staying. No, definitely and not. you'll find actually in those communities attitudes to migration are less diverse and people are more for it. Mm-hmm. But then there's also a correlation between the communities where migration is experienced, where migration spikes at certain points when resources are low. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that that's what creates, I think, the friction. Also, a lot of people's views are... Are, are, are driven by um, conditions of stress, resentment, and just taking a resentment because of some, you know, you're standing, I had done it a few weeks ago, I'm standing in a queue, it's very early in the morning, I know I've got a full day of work ahead of me, it's pissing the rain, this old woman in the front of the queue is just taking ages, we'll change. And st- in a wee brief moment, I was like, fucking old people. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Aye, Look, so everybody's, everybody's making a leap at some point. It's just your luck 
which leap is more socially acceptable uh-huh. and whether you've developed the capacity to observe a rational thinking and nip it in the bud before it develops into a full value system. Yeah, exactly. Man. This is one of the things that has changed in terms of how we talk about ourselves over the years is we've always had this conversation that's been very centred around, you know, the, the notions of class. And again, that links, you know, quite closely to your previous works and stuff. But, like, I think when we talk about the taxi driver... Um, you know, there's a, this divide and conquer we've spoken about a number of times. And I think, like, you know, part of that is that we're no longer working class. We're millennials or we're LGBTQ or we're, you know, whatever. You know, any number of labels that we have for ourselves now. And I think in the past, people who conceptualised themselves as working class or middle class had that group that they could lean on and actually feel, you know, a community way. Whereas I think even within these various class structures, there is now so many smaller segments that like getting people to actually agree what's in their best interests is almost impossible as a result and this is where the taxi driver comes in because as you say he's not actually annoyed by the migrant that comes in and takes you know quote unquote takes his job he's annoyed by the uber ceo who decided let's go in and undercut everybody in glasgow and what he doesn't realize is that that division you know, the immigrant is now being used and weaponised against take them. Take it even a step you know further I mean? and realise that it's the Saudi money that's going into the app and he's and they're the closest to the, the, the sort of war zones and they take in no refugees. It's like, it's a big, massive system yeah. that you're literally falling victim to, Aye. but you're reading or you're taking in media and pointing at individuals and going, they shouldn't be here. I've got a right to that job because Aye. I was born in this country and it just... It, Somebody somewhere's going, oh, you're part of this group. Well, that group, there's your enemy. Exactly. I would say, I would say, I mean, what, what is Uber? Uber is really the kind of vanguard of big data and yeah. and uh, automation and refining and cutting the number of human beings required to provide a multinational profitable service. Mm-hmm. Right. So as a capitalist idea, it's almost perfect. perfect. Oh yeah, it's almost perfect. But as a, but the problem with globalization currently is that we've globalized these products and services created by multinational companies, but we've not performed risk assessments to what this is going to do to our societies and mm-hmm. our populations. Whether yeah. it be their work, whether it be their mental health, whether it be obesity, whether it be big data access to social media, public mm-hmm. discourse, whether it be the environment. Yeah. Every single issue that is currently. Uh, drawn all of the focus and attention of pretty much every government in Western countries is caused by giving a blank check to a big corporation thinking that that is going to solve a problem in the short term mm-hmm. and not actually being able to perceive further along seeing what the long term impact might be mm-hmm. and and this is why you know while uh, while I don't necessarily think revolutionary action or destroying the system or tearing it all down. I'm not saying a lot of people are advocating that, but sometimes you get that sense, mm-hmm. particularly on the, the further route left and right that you go, that people really want a kind of fundamental restart. Mm-hmm. But actually, that would just make the people that we care about even more vulnerable because yeah. in a political vacuum, the people who have the most are in a position to exploit that. Yeah. So the, the, the issue for me is that, that, that globalisation has been 
set, the parameters have been set to benefit companies based on um, a fallacy that if they're rich and the CEOs all pay 40-50% tax, that money will just get ploughed back into society. Right. What they didn't account for was all the tax loopholes that would yeah. be exploited, mm-hmm. the revolving doors between business and politics that would create a scenario where democracy is really about taking care of those interests first. The consensus is really where everybody who has stuff meets to say what they're not going to gee up for the poor cunts, mm-hmm. and then uh, whatever's left over after that conversation's happened, then that's what everybody else gets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you need to think, of, there's no avoiding globalisation, there's no avoiding the fact that com- humans will network, and every mechanism that they access will network until it's just like a big pulsing fucking organism. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's, it's about how do we utilise technology and understanding and science and all these things that we're so capable of mm-hmm in service of human needs and environmental mm. needs first. Yeah. And then say, beyond this, take your profit. Let's incentivise companies to treat their workers well. Let's mm-hmm. say you get a tax break of the sort that you're enjoying now. Yep. If all your if, if you've got a workforce where only five percent of people are coming off sick with depression, then you can take your fucking yeah. profit. You know, let's incentivise companies to um to innovate products that don't harm the environment. Where it's not on the consumer to research and find out mm-hmm. if there's an ethical nightmare going on when you yeah. make a purchase. Let's just say that the companies have got the resources and the, uh, uh, and the understanding to already do that. I mean, if Cadbury's can understand how to create a piece of chocolate so that it sits on your tongue and dissolves within a certain time frame with a certain texture and smoothness that you'll immediately want to eat another bit, mm-hmm. then what else could they possibly devise? <laughs> yeah. I mean, all the sophistication that's poured into making mm-hmm. us buy shit it's all about human impulse, human needs, yeah. how we feel. It's very sophisticated, but it's all just about getting us to a tilt to buy a dairy well, milk. This is the That's juxtaposition, it. I think when you look at um, Amazon, for example, um, I've I seen a thing recently, it was the John Oliver uh, show, and he was talking about Amazon, and you talk about that progress on the surface, so the big thing was that Bernie Sanders managed to negotiate or, you know, pressure from the Sanders campaign and, you know, the radical left in America, such as it is. Um, Air quotes. Yeah, <laughs> sorry for anybody listening. Um, had managed to, you know, force Amazon to pay their workers $15 an hour and they were like, victory, you know, free at last, etc., etc. Uh, but, like, what it doesn't take into account is that, and again, it encompasses automation and the AI and, and these massive, massive warehouses, and like they've got people, because it's still dependent on people to work. So you press your button on Amazon Prime, your guy on the other end is getting his fifteen quid an hour, which is great. But what they're not telling you is that he's a seventy-five-year-old guy who's walked sixteen miles in a warehouse today, yeah. and he's like timed to the absolute second of everything that he does. And you're like, that's the the connect where you're going on the surface of things. It looks as though the fifteen-dollar an hour wages progress, but on the other side of it, this big data and AI and automation, automation is being weaponized against the physical well-being of the people there. Yeah. And, you know and, what I mean? And what? Because the system's no set up to identify and calculate metrics like what's fair on an old person, Yeah. then the system just doesn't flag it up. Mm. It's only it's only looking at efficiency mm-hmm. and profitability. So that's a very kind of Fordist approach. You know, in Henry Ford and 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 the sort of the, the kind of golden age of the American uh, expansion economically yeah. and globally... The whole thing that he developed was we can time 
how many, right to the millisecond, how long it takes for a person to assemble this part of a car. Yep. And then they move on to the next part of the production line. And so this is where that whole idea of efficiency really became very refined. And for a company, that can be dead useful. Yeah. But we need to be as specific with these measurements and metrics when we're talking about human health <clears throat> or when we're talking about ethical issues that are yep. thrown up. Now, I'm not saying that the current society we were, we're in can't be modified in some way. Because when you look at how far we've come, just on the broader kind of human civilizational scale, you know, a hundred years ago, everybody that's alive now, their life would have been a hundred times shitter, yeah, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Harder, more difficult, right? In some ways simpler, maybe not as like psychologically taxing, mm-hmm. no such an overburden of stimulus that you're not able to process at an individual mm-hmm. level. But at the same time, real hard work, not a lot of rights, generally just being shat on, literally sometimes, yeah. and, and nobody able to really get about, you know what I mean, unless you're wealthy. So we, sometimes in that broader scale, you've got to say, there has been a lot of advancements. This is a long-term project, this civilization stuff. Uh, and sometimes when we get to a cliff edge, whether it's the how manky the Thames was before they de- designed the first underground train, mm-hmm. or whether it was how bad the slums were before we had a radical house building programme and created a welfare state. Yep. Sometimes society comes to a cliff edge where even the powerful recognise, actually, we need to buck up our ideas a wee bit mm-hmm. because yeah. the society that we're exploiting is about to fall apart. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes that's when you get action. It's just a shame because there's a tremendous amount of collateral damage when... The elites have to feel threatened before they'll actually yeah. do something. Mm-hmm. So do you feel that's? I mean, I, I've I've said a number of times that I feel like societally we're on a tipping point. Like, so what you're describing there, Jink, well, that's first, where we are, Jink. We're on the way there. I think tipping points come along every couple of generations, mm-hmm. um, and it's natural for humans that are alive at any time in history to feel a sense of foreboding about what's coming. And this also, I think, might explain why a lot of people who begin on the left end up on the right, which has been calculated around the age of 47, mm-hmm. on average, is when okay. people switch. Yep. And so, I mean, I'm only 35 and already. I'm looking at some of the things the young people say, and I'm like, ah, fuck, man, you know what I mean? You're a brass neck. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you're doing my nothing, or you're dangerous. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Even people on the same side as me. So imagine what it must be like to to go at 60, 70, 80. I mean, old people are a relatively new thing in society. Yeah. You know what I mean? The average life expectancy was 40 in like the yeah. 15, 16, 1700s. And then with the industrial revolution, as the population expanded, the average life expectancy within 10 generations was 70. So the whole society is having to recalibrate to accommodate the fact that People live longer, mm-hmm. social care crisis, <clears throat> so on and so forth. But also the big strain is in the political discourse because naturally, if you grow up in a society that becomes unrecognisable the older you get, you're going to develop conservative impulses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're going to develop a sense, I need somebody who reminds me of the way things were when I was young. Mm-hmm. You know, bring back hanging. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and so there's, there's this thing I don't think that's been really accounted for, mm-hmm. which is... The, the, there's a the, there's a stretching of the diversity of political views and also people at that end of the spectrum are far more politically enfranchised and economically enfranchised often for a lifetime of working and so despite the fact that they are the ones that don't have to live in the society that's coming they're the ones that are steering it they're mm-hmm. the ones that are calling the shots because mm-hmm. they think here we've yeah. been alive this whole time so you wee bastards are not going to tell us what the fuck is happening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's why you've got politicians having to frame policy 
that's palatable to these conservative viewers, whether it's criminal justice. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine a demographic less knowledgeable about the current challenges yeah. of criminal justice in the judicial system than people, retired rural conservatives, yeah. who are less likely to be criminals, mm -hmm. less likely to be victims of crime, but they're calling the shots. Mm -hmm. They're saying, oh, get all this fucking, yeah. get all your pish to fuck, all this soft justice, do you know what I mean? Uh, I want my criminals fucking dead, you That's know what that. I mean? <laughs> You look at things like Gabor Mate, for instance, coming and saying things like the, the criminal justice system or the prison system is possibly the biggest asylum that's ever existed, that we don't commit people for yeah. like help anymore. We just judge them and throw them in a cell and just be Aye. like, you're, you're part of like society's sort of dregs and we don't want to deal with you so you can just get locked up and Aye. see you later. And pretty much every one of them, a, a man or a woman, is mentally ill in some way, do you know what I mean? And this is like, I think what and we're suffered abuse all, often earlier in their life. It doesn't absolve them of harming other people, obviously. Of not. But certainly, like we we're talking about viewpoints earlier, yeah. that you need to understand the roots of 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 criminality often lie in lack of access to opportunity, lack of education, and often some form of trauma at play mm -hmm. early in life, where a person's entire perception of the world is framed by insecurity. So they behave in a way to ward off threats and sometimes mm -hmm. this brings them into criminality, you know? Well, that's it. And right. the, the, in America as well, the big lesson for us, and I think we kind of learned this where we we, 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 uh, we try to privatise probation. Right? Yeah. And it's been a nightmare and it's cost millions and it doesn't work. So we've said, actually, we're, no, we're not going to privatise probation anymore. In America, almost everything's private. Yeah. Right? So when you insert a profit motive into human health or well-being, immediately there's an ethical conflict. Yeah. Because the investments that you need to make in order to create the potential opportunities to reform people, uh, sometimes you're going to make losses on that. One year, two people might reform. The next year, 200 people might reform. You can't withdraw the money. The year two people do well because it looks inefficient. You know, mm -hmm. this is what we do in society often. You know, only 10 people got in that library this year. Tell you what, see, instead of investing in the library and putting as much thought into the library that Starbucks put into a coffee house, mm. let's just close it because obviously people are not using it. Yeah. And so it's inefficient. Yeah. And that's a problem when capitalism yeah. gets its tentacles into everything because not everything can be run on a supply and demand yeah. basis. Definitely. Definitely. I, I, I've came to the conclusion that especially under the Trump era, using GDP or the health of the market as a barometer for how well the country's doing yeah. is absolutely fucking insane because the market serves the people at the top ultimately and going like, look how well we've done. Yeah. And the Tories date as well. Um, they, they talk about like unemployment figures, unemployment figures are it, right? But how do we feel? I think that there's, there's this missing like human element to politics and society as in general, that I think people are craving. Like, we need to start, there needs to be some sort of politician that comes out and starts talking about how do we feel. I remember somebody saying to me, there's no room for compassion in uh, economics. Yeah. And I was like, why the fuck Economics no, is whatever we channel into it. I exactly. mean, economics yeah. is a human we made construct. It. <laughs> so Aye. it's not like something that rules us. Like, we should be ultimately dominating it and de determining what happens, I think, in a world where... Well, I mean, I watch a lot of American podcasts, and they were talking about they were 
talking about like the British NHS as if it was like some sort of Victorian, like we were amputating people with fucking hacksaws and barbels. That's the way Aye. that they were speaking about it and how great their healthcare system is. Like, it's not that fucking great, man. Like, there's people travelling from Texas to Canada to get cancer treatment that's affordable. Like, how can you not see that there's got to be something in the middle that where if you can afford it, you can get lavish healthcare like if you want it. But 300,000 deaths a year in America well, as a result of the insurance, you know what I mean? Like, so the system itself but is that's, so seriously My flawed. point is, is that the, the profit motive ultimately ends up driving services down so that it can be painted to people's inefficient. And that's even when everybody's acting with integrity or within the rules. Then you've got the opioid crisis, yeah. which is partly triggered by people creating drugs they know they're addictive and paying doctors to prescribe them. See, that's and you've got as many up. people dying. Uh, you know, the opioid crisis is just like a fucking genocide almost mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the scale in the States. And it's as most trends in America, it's making its way here and presenting in different ways, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, um, and and these, as I said earlier, are the, uh, the, this is the blowback of a market that is driven by the needs of corporations based on the fallacy that if they're doing well, we'll all do well. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying people who were pioneering neoliberalism didn't genuinely believe this is a good way to set up a society. Yeah. Everybody's free, companies are people, and, and if companies we just set their ingenuity loose, they're a lot more intuitive and responsive than the state. Mm. They can just adapt based on needs, then everything will be fine. But I think the last 15 years has really been a hard lesson for everybody. And I think the EU's began to learn that. I mean, that's them started fining Google. That's them started, you know, clamping down on everything from food labelling and yep. challenging food lobbies to honestly label their products. They're getting, a, I think France brought in a law about um, digital services tax, yeah. which obviously Trump is going to play hard. I said that's going to cripple Google. Aye. 3% tax on services is going to cripple Google. I mean, like you're talking about Amazon, but Jeff Bezos much, is the, the, most, the richest guy in the fucking planet. Taking 3% off of his company is going to do fuck all. It absolutely not even going to touch the sides. Aye, it, might, it, it might mean something, their share price goes down, or it might mean they're not the Aye. number one company in the world, but mm-hmm. is that the worst thing ever? And, and you know, those things, th- those ideas, I think, particularly in Europe, because, and this is why I voted Remain, even though I understand why people are displeased with the system, is that I believe the big force shaping lifestyles, politics and social problems is that sort of unfettered corporatocracy that's just been let loose on the planet, mm-hmm. that's no powerful than most countries. Yeah. And the only way that we can modulate that force is to collectivise as nation states and say, here's our big marketplace. You want access to this, you play by our rules. Mm -hmm. If you want to go to court for 10 years, Google, we can do that because we're the EU and we're bigger than China and we're bigger than America when you're talking about selling products. And, And ultimately, I don't see a scenario where Britain outside the EU is going to be able to stand up to those forces. No. If anything, we're going to be like, please, Google. Because we're in competition with yeah, them. Please, absolutely. Amazon, come and build a factory for pensioners to work in Aye. so that the politicians can go on to Twitter with all the grace of potty training toddlers and lie about the employment figures. Mm-hmm. Like the- Someday in one hour of work a week is employed. Um, it's, like- just, it's nonsensical. But again, and this is the conflict, I think, where you've got centrist politics. I think some people in the centre understand these forces need to be wielded in some way. Yeah. That pressure needs to be exerted. 
but their belief is that you only do that by creating a consensus within the population for that sort of action mm-hmm. and that's a slow drawn out process yeah. obviously yeah. some people in the centre are met of the right and they believe that corporations are really good and Mm-hmm. It's our fault for not choosing yeah. the right products, and companies will change when we don't buy their the market. The market will dictate. Aye, don't worry, leave aye. it to the market. It's yeah. like it's crazy. But then I, you get people in the left that are just like fucking tear it all fucking down. Mm-hmm. Do you know? there's, there's this aye. strange thing that's that I've seen happening for a while because I get right into it and took a step back, but. The conspiracy theory community is really starting to come to prominence. I mean, you've got Tommy Robinson with a t-shirt saying that he's been convicted for being a journalist. Oh my God. And then he's going on Infowars and he's talking about how he may be murdered for being a journalist in the UK and he's wanting political asylum. The Trump QAnon stuff is really interesting, but it's it, it feels to me like that whole sort of community or like people that think that there are dark forces at work behind the scenes that everybody that uh, sort of contributes to the, the, the market or society one world government new world order they're attacking us they're attacking our culture they're all jewish yeah uh, this yeah. is what this is what it's getting to and it's really fucking scary that well we've seen i mean even a couple of days ago they're attacking people on the street there was like an anti-brexit um outside westminster yeah and tommy robinson supporters ran along and attacked and then attacked the bbc so we're starting to see this start coming into the mainstream and i find it particularly strange and scary because i i dipped my toe and seen some of the stuff that they're actually saying not in the mainstream yeah. like behind the scenes on like their four and eight chans and it's scary stuff man it's like Aye. um they think that trump's some sort of patriot the the blue collar billionaire that's out there to out the, the worldwide sex Aye. ring that that exists that that the clintons are trafficking the guy that children walks into and... dressing rooms and all that but Aye. i think that's people who exactly. like are taking what Dan's talking about there, this this globalist movement, this thing, this globalization of everything, and misinterpreting it, and and seeing shadows and conspiracies and whatever that you know, almost certainly on mass, are they there? I don't feel there's a conspiracy because pretty much everything is out in the open. If you want to do enough reading, you want yeah. to do enough research. I mean, like the Illuminati conspiracy theory stuff, which. I later realised was a bit more anti-Semitic than anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but everybody goes through a kind of rite of passage as young people smoke a lot of blah. <laughs> it's like, oh, I, I know, I know what's actually going on and no, fucking yeah. all, all that sort of stuff. Um, but the, then all the information is out there. The EU publish every fucking conversation they're having, every bit of legislation, yeah. every single thing that comprises our reality and our society politically and economically is usually something you can go and read or find out mm-hmm. or you can go and research. So I think that the, the conspiracy theory stuff almost functions as a metaphor. The reality is far more interesting and far more complex, yeah. I believe anyway. And it's not that I believe, it just is. Mm-hmm. Um, now, is there power imbalances? Absolutely. Are there people acting with malign intentions? Absolutely. Uh do we have to be aware of networks where power and wealth is concentrated? Absolutely. Because these are things that arise out of human behaviour, whatever side of the social scale you're at. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you like, how can I... I know that this will sound a bit kind of, like, stupid for me to say. As soon as I got an opportunity to write a book, first thought I was, was my sister, she's probably a better writer than me. If she gets an opportunity, one day I'll help her get her foot in the door. Right. right? It's all right for me to do that because I'm doing there. Mm-hmm. 
But my instinct's not that different for somebody else going like that. Do you know what I mean? Like some billionaire going like that, son, I'm going to put you in charge mm-hmm. of the farm. You know what I mean? Right. You know, there's, an in, there's a human instinct yeah. to sort of sort out the people that are around you. Yeah. To the detriment of other people who might be more deserving, who might have more merit. You know yeah. what I mean? And, 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 you know, I'm not saying there's an equivalence between these two Aye. things. Obviously, where there's a lot of power and wealth, we need to get in there to say, nah, that's not really going to work for us because mm-hmm. money's like a magnet and it just goes to itself. Yeah. But the impulses that drive a lot of the are behaviour nepotisms? are the same. Aye. They're the same. Yeah. It's, I want to look after people that I know. I relate to people who exist in my experience. I identify with people who have this certain kind of lifestyle because we all get it, what yep. it's like to be us. Mm-hmm. And it just depends on how much money and power a community has, uh, how many consequences come. Yeah. For the rest of society, and I think that's, I think that's, you've probably just touched on it right at the end. There is the is the notion of community. So we were watching the, the flat Earth thing on Netflix a couple of weeks ago, aye, um, and obviously what came out of that was community. But I, I'm aware that we're obviously getting to you know, quite tight for time here. So I want to just kind of like start the wrap up process with the show. Um, you've been on the scene in Glasgow for years. You've been a rapper. You're a rapper. You're a writer. No, you're what is it safe to say a playwright? You know, a um, social commentator. So there's aye, you've got aye. a lot of strings to your bow here. Yeah. Um. Obviously, the what we've been talking about has been really interesting. Where does, where does, where do these all meet in the middle? Because I'm interested in you know that's is there a, a common thought process? Is a you yeah. know are you evolving and changing with each individual you I, know element that comes in? I would hope so. I mean, that's definitely my aim. Last year, my show I think was informed by. The, obviously the book was a primary influence. A lot of people who had read the book and came to the show would have seen the, all the references to the book. Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, what, what some people didn't realise was the two, big, the, two big, uh, the two big things in my mind when creating that show were I want to show people what an influence comedy has had on me. Okay. So this was something a lot of people didn't understand about me because they didn't really have a chance to showcase it, right? But I really am as influenced by comedians and my early work as and as I have been by rappers yep. or writers or public speakers. So I wanted to kind of no sell the show as comedy because there's too much pressure then on it to be funny. Okay. But actually smuggle comedy into it under the kind of auspices of what people think they're coming to see, which is a rant about poverty. Okay. Yeah. So that's one aspect of it. And then... Uh, the other thing really was to try and put Scottish rap in a context where people can enjoy it and absorb it without that initial prejudice of going, this is Scottish rap. Yeah. So the best way to do that is take it out of the scheme, take it out of the gritty context, mm-hmm. put it in a theatre, and suddenly people feel it's incumbent on them to yeah. appreciate it or they're stupid. Because okay. it's in a theatre, mm-hmm. and they're like, well, this is a theatre, so what's going on here must be sophisticated, because I'm yeah. sophisticated. Aye. And so suddenly you're shoveling Scottish rap down everybody's throat, and they're actually all buzzing about it, <laughs> and they're all queuing up to get books signed after it, and they don't even know they've been watching Scottish rap. Yeah. They don't even, it doesn't click, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if I put out the same content that I put in my show... With the instrumentals and the hip hop beats and mm-hmm. the gritty videos and all that, those same people, a lot of them would be like, ah, "Can I watch this, man? Yeah. This is too angry." But see, when you frame it as spoken word, or see when you say it's theatre right. or whatever, 
then the whole audience attitude towards it changes. Mm-hmm. And so with the last show, Poverty's Fire Alive, that was a success in, t- in terms of my objectives. And I think I sold out eight shows and the rest of them were three quarters full. And that was my first time at the Fringe. Mm-hmm. So that was really cool. This year, obviously, um, I've uh, I've tried to write a diff- different type of show, blending the same elements. Yeah. Last year, I would say probably Stuart Lee was the main comedic influence on it. I did oh, a lot of kind of meta tech. Love Stuart Lee. I did a lot of kind of meta textual shit and sort of like winding the audience up and sort of talking about how clever my stuff was and all that. Yeah. Right? And had a lot of fun with it. He's an absolute master at that. Aye. So, yeah, uh, so, but I think this year I'm going for many a kind of George Carlin vibe. Okay. So it's a bit more tightly written. There's less deviations. There's less of the meta stuff. It's more kind of, here is my very carefully worded rant. Here is my very carefully worded observation. Here's mm-hmm. a carefully worded joke. Yeah. Less play, less taking the ball for a walk. Um, more like, you know, I'm noticed as I'm looking at the drafts that the it's a lot denser. So there's less music in it. There's less rap in it. Mm-hmm. So that that hits harder. Okay. Um, I think last time I didn't have as much time to write as I would have liked to. So I think I substituted songs in mm-hmm. when I thought, mm-hmm. actually, this song will do the legwork for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, this time, maybe two or three songs, maybe four. And and the rest is, you know, on, at least on the draft, it's, it's big, chunky paragraphs, mm-hmm. really meaty stuff. Do you know what I mean? Some of the stuff we've went into a wee bit today. Yep. Um, and I think that the, the, the show's a reflection of where my head's at in preparation for this next book. So aye, the content does kind of port quite well mm-hmm. to different mediums. And obviously when you're dealing with big ideas or you're working towards a show which takes up a lot of time and energy, the same as a book, you really have to kind of pick a ballpark where you're drawing all your content from a similar source. Yeah, You're thinking about a similar issue because the analysis gets deeper and also you've got a finite amount of time and space in your mind and in your life to be talking about poverty and social mobility and one thing and then talking about something else and another thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you, I really take a year out and explore. I'm exploring one area and all my stuff is about that, yeah. mm-hmm. whether it's the music or the show or the book, and then it's on to the next thing, whatever it I may think be. when I think about the, you know, on the surface, it, you know, notions of rap and comedy don't instantly, like, you know, vibe with me. But at the same time, see when you talk about like a George Carlin and I'm thinking to myself, do you know what? What about a public enemy? There is there is a political discourse in both. There is often quite a confrontational approach in both. Like, and I think like you know that's something I'm definitely looking forward to seeing uh, when the show comes in. Is that you know mixture of you know the rap and the Aye. and the you know the, the almost ranty comedy because I think you know although it wouldn't be something that I immediately put together when you explain it in the terms that you just have, it is something that is extremely appealing to it's me it's funny that I describe it as a rant that's how middle class people describe working class people when mm-hmm. they speak at length about something yeah mm-hmm. when a middle class person speaks at length about something they'll call it verbose yeah. you know what I mean <laughs> or they'll call it uh, articulate you know or lengthy mm-hmm. but when it's somebody like me that does it it's a rant, it's yeah. a rant. so sometimes I just adopt those terms because I'm so fed up saying actually I think that you calling this a rant maybe minimises yeah. how much work I put into it patronising you just like that do you know what Fuck it, it is brutal, it is fucking harrowing, it is a fucking rant. Get in line, do you know what I mean? Yep. And strap yourself in, you cunts. <laughs> <laughs> well, cheers for coming on, I man. I will be strapped in. Proper, like, love this conversation and it's been a pleasure to meet you. But thanks very much. And we're going to come through to Edinburgh and see the show and I'll link it up to um, all the sort of stuff that we put out there. But good Brilliant. luck with it, man. No, Aye. thanks for your support, thanks man. Really it's been appreciate good to the chat. Timing. Cheers. Thanks for coming in.
don't need to be unhappy With a life to call my own We'll end up burning bridges Sat upon a selfish throne I will march along this path of Ambitious, forceful ties I'll be dead before it crashes Down before my eyes I know we'll make it Through smiles and trials of fire Fade. You call upon